Empower Radio presents The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Break through the illusion of separation, explore the infinite field of possibility, and make connections that inspire. Now, here's your host, Dr. Julie Crawl. Hello and welcome everyone. You're listening to The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Each week we gather right here to make connections that break through the illusion of separation. And I found a new phrase today that I'm really, 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 really loving and came really embedded in in many, many pages of this new book that I read. And I want to just give you a couple little hints to it. The phrase is the way of unity. Isn't that nice? The way of unity. I'll give you a couple hints. It could be a path toward an emergent, interconnected, cooperative, pro-social world informed by an evolutionary leap of consciousness. Perhaps it's a path of personal and collective transformation that leads us through the heart. Can the way of unity heal lives and nations in an ailing world? My guest today lays out the great universal and unifying spiritual principles and scientific breakthroughs that weave an integral pathway forward toward a world of wholeness and holiness, a world transformed by both personal and planetary healing. I'm going to ask her what a way of unity means to her as well. But I first, I invite you to take a few deep breaths, open your heart and mind, and settle into your essential wholeness as I introduce our guest, Dr. Elena Mostakova, psychologist, educator, counselor, writer, social scientist, and former professor in adult developmental psychology focuses her work on fostering the transformation of consciousness to meet the challenges of a planetary age. She is the author of Global Unitive Healing, Integral Skills for Personal and Collective Transformation. Welcome so much to the show, Elena. Thank you so much, Julie. Thank you. It's a great pleasure and joy to be with you. It's nice to have you here. We've been kind of on some calls together and in the peripheral, and we have so many mutual friends, and I'm just really honored to to finally connect with you in voice and bring your work to all of our listeners. It's exciting. And, and the book is, um, wow, it is a comprehensive book. I can't wait to dig into it. But first, Elaine, I have a traditional first question on the show that I like to ask to kind of set the stage and set a, the, the deeper meme of what's happening here. So could you share with our listeners, what does all things connected mean to you? That's such a lovely question. Thank you. What it means to me is that reality is unitary. Reality is consciousness and consciousness unites a living, pulsating universe. And so, yes, all things in this universe are interconnected, even though we're often not aware of that. 
And I'm very grateful that your show emphasizes that interconnectedness and heightens people's awareness of that often invisible fact. Mm. Thank you. That was, that was really a sweet explanation and I really appreciate those kind words. Um, it, it's fun to really deepen into this and I do find that unitive consciousness on every page of your book. I'm looking forward to getting into it. But before we get into the book, Elena, why don't we share, uh, invite you to just share a little bit about yourself and your life's journey. Who's Elena and how did you arrive on this path of the unitive way? Thank you. I appreciate that personal question. Um, I grew up in Bulgaria in a communist totalitarian society where people were distinctly set against each other. Um, the whole system worked on a very intricate uh, network of uh, spies and people who would report on others. And you grew up being told in your family that the moment you set foot past the threshold of your home, you have to be very careful and very aware what you say because a joke or even a word in the wrong place can be interpreted as not being loyal to the regime and your parents or yourself could end up in a labor camp for the rest of your life. So I grew up with this fear of, uh, of the lurking hostel unknown out there of uh, really not knowing who around me could be trusted and my heart really suffered. Um, I just could not understand why we have to create such a world for each other. And since very young age, I started to ask myself the question, what is the difference between those people who would eventually report on each other and the people who would rather go to a labor camp than report on their friends or associates on anybody else, what is the difference between these two types of consciousness? The ones that are willing to betray themselves and each other, and those who are willing to take on any level of suffering to remain true to their inner values. I, I always wanted to understand. I wanted to understand why we betray ourselves. So that was my journey to the US eventually. I already had a master's degree. I was teaching and working in Bulgaria, but that question of human motivation kept pestering me. And so eventually um, I had traveled quite a bit um, in other parts of the world before that, but eventually I came to the US to pursue a doctorate and in my uh, entry-level doctorate seminar, I was asked what brings me there. And my answer was, I want to understand why we betray ourselves. And my professor, God bless him, a Connecticut Yankee, laughed wholeheartedly and said, oh, wow, you've got this planned for today. What do you have planned for tomorrow? And I was shocked. Um, I couldn't understand his humor. For me, it was a question of life and death, because it was when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. um, eventually, we became good friends, and I explained to him that that was really not humorous at all, that that is the most profound question for all of us. And it has continued to be a question 
to which I've remained committed for the rest of my life and work. Of course, in many different ways, the ways have changed. Early on, it was research in the nature of critical moral consciousness. Later on, it was working with students and adults in various educational and other contexts and clinical contexts and accompanying one person at a time uh, in their journey to becoming true to themselves and therefore whole and healing. So that's pretty much the story. Mm. I love that it begins with that passion and um, it's a it's an important story for all of us to really contemplate. I agree with that question. It's a profound question. And especially as we're looking at this major transition happening on the planet right now, those kinds of questions bring us to um, our fullest potential, like literally to, to really jump in. And you do this in the book. You, you give us so many different integral skills for the personal and collective transformation that you write about here. <clears throat> I'm going to ask you um, obvious direct question here to kind of set the stage so we can dive in. I guess it's going to be a two-part question because in my intro, I mentioned my favorite phrase, a way of unity. I'd love to hear you talk about what that means to you, a way of unity. You use it embedded in throughout this beautiful manuscript. And then um, from your perspective, what is Global Unitive Healing, the title of your book? Thank you. Thank you again. Your questions really go to the heart of the matter, don't they? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so what is the way of unity for me? The way I understand it, every wisdom tradition has unfolded for humanity at that particular time. The zone of proximal development, so to speak, that I'm using here the terms of uh, Russian psychologist Vygotsky. Um, and the zone of proximal development is really the, 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 the stage of development towards which we are poised to grow, to grow into. And so each wisdom tradition has revealed a way of being, a unique way of being, which is also developmental and evolutionary for humanity. And so uh, the way of unity, as I understand it, is really the next stage in our collective evolution. But it was also revealed in a particular historic context. And this context was the Baha'i dispensation of the 19th century. At that time, for the first time, it appears humanity was ready to grow into um, awareness of our oneness, of our interconnectedness, and of our needs to work together. Of course, that was happening in the context of industrialization, 
um, and the existence already of uh, global empires. And so a growing mixing up of populations from different parts of the world that were informing each other. And so it was perfectly logical that by midway in the 19th century, this powerful spiritual teacher, this prophetic voice would arise that would speak to humanity about the way of unity. And when this voice was first raised, um, that of course was very much ahead of its uh, time in the sense that people were not aware that the time had come for that. But it was laid out so powerfully, so beautifully, that tens of thousands of people responded, responded with their hearts, even as the intellectual and cognitive understanding of what was being revealed was probably lagging far behind, as is usually the case. And so the way of unity spoke to hearts, began to connect hearts, and it began to spread and that was really the 19th century prophecy that while at the time when it was first named as the next stage in the evolution of collective human consciousness, it was really quite unfathomed. The prophecy was that it will very rapidly spread and it will become the newly emergent consciousness of humanity and it will lead to collective social evolution into a planetary peaceful civilization. And that would be a process over several centuries. That was prophesied in the 19th century. And of course, we are 170 years later and we're seeing this really manifesting in every part of the world. And so the way of unity is both a powerful internal reality as well as a collective reality. Internally, it says we are ready to mature into this awareness. We're ready to step into living out of this reality. Um, so it's an internal spiritual readiness to step into this awareness and to live it. It's also a statement about our collective readiness to step-by-step step create the uh, processes and institutions that will uh, make it happen on a planetary level. So it's a, it's a profound, profound way, and it's unfolding. And so then the second part of your question, what does global unity of healing mean uh, to me? Well, it seems that in this age, and that's been my observation in my clinical work as well as my educational work, people only heal to the extent to which they awaken to their interconnectedness and act out of it. So healing, in fact, is a unitive process in this age. And it is not just a unitive process in our private circles. It may begin there, but it always eventually uh, raises questions of meaning and purpose. And in the context of a struggling, turbulent planet that is really working hard to transform itself into a sustainable whole, um, these questions of meaning and purpose gain a collective dimension. So uh, I see global unitive healing as the only kind of healing 
practically possible in the age in which we live. Hmm. And I try to describe it because I realize that for many people, there is no frame of reference for this. There is no understanding. I was lucky enough, I was blessed to come upon these writings uh, that date back to the mid-19th century and to little by little over many years begin to deepen my grasp of them. And my own personal life experience began to make sense. In my mid-30s, I started to look back and understand my path, which I did not understand before that. That frame of reference helped me understand many things. And I realized working with people from every walk of life and every part of the world, that people often don't have this frame of reference. In fact, I get told things like that almost daily. And so I felt that it was really important to lay it out there, make it available. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for both of those um, explanations, definitions. It's it's powerful stuff. I loved the, the Baha'i writings that you wove through the pages as well that, that really talk about that unitive way, the way of unity is, is so beautiful. Um, so your, your doctoral studies focused on how people in every part of the world develop this empowered, discerning, and you call it morally coherent consciousness. I love that in, in different cultural and social contexts. And so your your life path, like you've already mentioned, your education and your vocation have really prepared you to write this book. It's it's exquisite. This idea seems foundational for our global planetary culture, not just our global unit of healing, but to evolve our culture here. So say more about the morally coherent consciousness and how it's a strand of this path that we're now weaving so I am very grateful that you see the connection with, between these two pieces of work because indeed it has been uh, a single path for me. And I did feel when the pandemic began and I felt moved to write the book that we're now talking about, I did feel that that was pretty much um, the climax of all of my work. It was tying everything together. And so uh, this critical consciousness, which fascinated me in my uh, earlier years, is this willingness of people from every developmental level, frankly, to earnestly, pure-heartedly seek truth and coherence in their lives and allow that search to face them with all kinds of difficult questions, uncomfortable questions. And being willing to entertain these questions and engage in what they understood, live it, act it out. Uh, and so to me, that was a very empowered state, a state of being, which was also fairly rare. And I wanted to understand it. And what I came to understand when I began the, the, the process, I thought, uh, surely that has a lot to do with cognitive sophistication with our ability to reason through things. Um, I was, of course, doing my doctorate in adult development at the time. And so I thought this must all have to do with uh, the development of, uh, of our reasoning. But what was my most striking discovery 
is that yes, our ability to reason, our cognitive developmental um, evolution is important, but more important than that is a deep motivation, which in people who manifest this critical moral consciousness is uh, a guiding motivation. And I came to see that this motivation is there for every one of us, but for many lives it becomes layered uh, by other motives and eventually uh, access to it is somehow uh, numbed, I will say. And for the people who manifest this uh, critical moral consciousness, this pure-hearted motivation, which we see in children, really, who are just irresistibly attracted to that which they perceive as true, as good, as and as beautiful, that motivation continues to guide these lives, even as the understanding of what is true, good, and beautiful, beautiful evolves with uh, social cognitive uh, evolution of consciousness. So it is a matter of deep motivation. And years later, I uh, found the work of Viktor Frankl, who came out of Auschwitz strikingly after watching millions of people taken to, to gas chambers. He came out of there with, by his own account, deepened faith. And what he said was that what ultimately sustains us is the search for meaning and purpose. That when we're true to that search, we are able to overcome and transform the most unfathomable experiences and circumstances. That that is our deepest spiritual motivation. By the time I came upon his work, I had already done my uh, dissertation on critical moral consciousness. And so that was a beautiful and powerful convergence. That is a beautiful and powerful convergence. I love that. And and the whole conversation about meaning and purpose is really coming to light for so many evolutionary leaders right now. I, Your developmental psychology background is important in so many ways here and you know it's we're both psychotherapists psychologists it's fun to connect with you in this way but there's um a a thing you write about in the book that i think is interesting so we have like four minutes before break i just want to give you a moment to do this and then after the break we'll dig deeper into a lot of these other skills and and further conversation but you write developmental psychology views the individual lifespan as a double helix in which the cycle of empowering self-transformation is followed by a cycle of liberating self-transcendence i bet the people listening to that that we have this cycle of empowering self-transformation followed by a cycle of liberating self-transcendence. I love this idea, and and so many people out there um, are going to really resonate with it. I'd love to hear you explain this double helix to us. Well, this uh, first part, the cycle of self-formation, is really what we come into this life forced to do. We are thrust into the physical and social realm, and it is completely overwhelming and overpowering. And so we have to form some sense of self 
as an organizing principle so that we can filter perceptions, so that we can organize our perceptions and organize our relationship to everything that surrounds us. And so the structure of the self undergoes several stages that are described in that first cycle. And these are the stages of self-formation. Before we begin the cycle of self-transcendence, we have to have been able to form a solid, um, clearly defined sense of self, which in uh, this evolutionary helix tends to be understood as the institutional self, the last stage of the cycle of self-formation. And But of course, it's a painful process going from stage to stage. And that's one of the things that I love about uh, this developmental approach, that it's so deeply compassionate. It shows us the agony and ecstasy of the journey between each two stages. There are steps and micro steps in the journey between each two stages. And each next stage is a victory as it is also a letting go of something, a form of leaving home and finding new ground. So it's a very compelling human journey. But once we come to uh, the stage of a mature sense of self with clearly articulated values and boundaries of the self and um, more or less principled ways of relating to others, to our calling to our sexuality, to our place in society, to all of these things, we begin to experience more and more the limitation of these self-definitions. And so yet another journey of leaving home begins, but that is not just a next stage. It is an entry into a whole new cycle of breakthrough realizations. Yeah. And then that self-transcendence. I love that. And I thank you. You corrected me. I, I said twice, I think, transformation instead of formation, self-formation. So thank you for that explanation. And and the book talks about love and beauty and meaning and purpose. And there's so much more. I feel like I, I'm excited about the cognitive part of what you bring here with really good research. But we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to kind of deepen into some of these really there's gorgeous writing in the book there's some more concepts i want to share with you listeners so thanks for sticking with us i'm julie kroll you're listening to the dr julie show we're here today with elena mustakova and talking about the global unitive healing we'll be right back Meditation Channel. Non-stop meditation music 24 hours a day in the new Empower Radio app. Music to empower your meditation, help you relax, sleep, or provide a calm background while you work. The Empower Meditation Channel is interruption-free. Listen now with the Empower Radio app, free in the App Store, or listen online at empower.fm. Soothe your soul, calm your mind. The Empower Meditation Channel. Hey everybody, this is Josh Groban. After so many years on the stage, one of my favorite things about music is its ability to inspire and nourish the soul. That's why I'm proud to work with Feeding America, an organization that inspires hope for families in need and helps nourish the 16 million kids in this country struggling with hunger. Every year, billions of pounds of excess food go to waste, while one in five children may be left not knowing where their next meal is coming from. 
or if it's even coming at all. Thankfully, the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks collects surplus food and helps deliver it to kids in need across the country. But they can't do it alone. Join me in supporting Feeding America and your local food bank at feedingamerica.org. Together, we can solve hunger. Together, we're Feeding America. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. This is a test to find out if you know it all when it comes to children. Time starts now. Name one of the leading killers of U.S. children age 1 to 13. What's the best way to protect children in a car crash? At what age and size should a child start using a booster seat? Where can you find the answers to these questions? Car crashes are one of the leading killers of U.S. children. Many of those deaths could be prevented by making sure that kids are in the right seat for their age and size. Don't assume you know it all when it comes to car seats for your child. Go to safercar.gov slash the right seat and know for sure. That's safercar.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Today, you ate Greek yogurt. You took the train. You wondered why people spend so much time reading celebrity blogs. You read a celebrity blog. You planned a workout. You skipped it. You did all the things that one normally does the day before a devastating earthquake shakes the community to the ground. You never know when the day before is the day before. Prepare for tomorrow at ready.gov today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ed Council. Back to the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected on Empower Radio. Welcome back. Hey, if you're inspired by our conversation today, I invite you to share it with others and perhaps listen to it again. You can do that by visiting my website at thedrjulieshow.com where you'll find all the archive links. As well. Again, that's thedrjulieshow.com. And on the leading edge of personal, social, and global transformation, I invite you to be a way shower, a change agent, and make connections that inspire and accelerate our collective awakening and planetary healing. Stay connected with my newsletter where you'll find meaningful content, opportunities, and inspiration. And again, all of these archive links, there's um, easy ways to find these shows that you're listening to here. So you could do that by signing up at juliecrawlemail.com. Again, that's juliecrawlemail.com. I'm here today with the magnificent Elena Mustakova. You can find her at elenamustakova.net and global social health. Dot org. So, Elena, I promise we're going to presence the heart. I can't wait to talk about the heart, to talk about love, to talk about some yummy things. But first, I do want to just kind of go back to this. By the way, I have four pages of questions and notes. I just have loved this, and there's no way we're going to get to all of it. But I do want to go back to this idea of this evolutionary precipice that we're at right now there's an imperative written in your book and and many of us are talking about but but you talk about this imperative that we need to see how our individual trajectories fit organically within a larger picture it moves us from individual purpose to more of our collective evolutionary 
purpose from the individual to the collective here. So this is that higher level of unity we talked about. And you mentioned David Sloan Wilson, who points out that once life is seen as a vast interconnected system, certain ethical conclusions follow. So again, as we're kind of grounding ourselves and embodying this unitive consciousness, things begin to shift and we begin to look to, to really live differently. Can you say more about this critical shift in consciousness and where we're at on the planet right now? Yes, it's a very, very important thing to ponder and really give deep thought to, uh, especially because we are at this point now, but this point has been long time coming. In fact, the whole history of human civilization has prepared us for this point. When we look at the history of wisdom traditions, step by step, they were preparing us and they were accompanying us in our collective evolution, learning the way of presence, learning the state of pure consciousness that allows us to cultivate through meditation um, a presence beyond the immediate, the particular, the anguish, learning the way of clarity that came from, if the way of presence came from Hinduism, the way of clarity came from Buddhism, and we learned something about what it means to transcend pain and attachment and clinging and to find freedom. Um, learning the way of, of holiness, uh, learning the way of love, learning the way of passion. Every wisdom tradition has taken us along. And now all of these, the way of presence, the way of clarity, the way of holiness, the way of love, the way of passion, all of these have to come together in the way of unity, because that is the evolutionary trajectory of human civilization. And we've come to this next stage now. And this is the stage that is going to make this beautiful planet of ours sustainable for every living being, for every human and for every living being because that will be a stage of collective consciousness that will be able to create the structures and the processes for true global justice. Mm. So uh, this is a, a very powerful developmental and evolutionary moment. And uh, we simply don't hear enough about it. We don't read enough about it. We don't hear enough about it. Main Mainstream media has nothing to say about it. People are only seeing the crisis, not necessarily the possibility. And so it is thanks to the grassroots movements and alternative radio stations and various media like yours that are trying to reach out to people that there is an opportunity to realize, wait, this isn't just a time of tremendous shaking and confusion and unknown. It is also a time of emergence. This is a message that just cannot be spread far enough right now. It's a frame of reference we need. When people see the trajectory ahead, they feel empowered. They, they can see their place. They can put their personal lives and struggles into a larger context and are no longer disheartened. So this is so important. Mm, it is, it is. And you know, I'm gonna, before we go back to the heart, I just wanna 
expand on this because this 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 idea of serving a greater whole really echoes throughout the book. It's extremely relevant to this conversation here. So the idea that service to the greater whole is critical. Serving the good, greater good is like the medicine of our soul right now. I like to say this is nurturing our innate capacity to live for the good of the whole. Talk about this service because it's, it's like once we do wake to that um, this idea and this consciousness, we can't do anything but want to serve that greater good. We want to, we want to care and, and create cooperative communities that care for all life and future generations. Can you say more about this idea of service and stewardship? It's like our purpose is stewardship here. Yes, it is. And it's important what you said uh, just a few minutes ago, that when we awaken we realize our desire to serve, the innate human desire to serve the well-being of loved ones, of others, was has always been with us. And every wisdom tradition has encouraged it. It's just that the circles of what we understand and serve have expanded tremendously. Mm-hmm. If that was the family or the clan or the city-state or the nation, now that kind of service has to be oriented towards our planetary living community because it is the community that is the context of our lives anymore. We are not, our lives are not in the context of a nation or a place alone. We saw through the pandemic how very interdependent we are. We're still hearing about um, uh, breakdowns in the supply chain. We're still asking ourselves, what are we going to do with these millions of displaced, uprooted people Um, So we know that everything that happens in other parts of the world affects us. We hear every day about the the loss of uh, species and the changes in uh, our climate, the changes in our environments. We experience those changes. So it is apparent in every way that what used to be service to my family or my community now has to be service to this global reality, stewardship and service. And of course, service is the most joyful way to live. That is the whole history of human civilization testifies to it. Every sage, every wisdom tradition, every life that we admire is essentially a life of service. It's just more complex now because we have to find our path of service in a very complex global whole, which is so turbulent and does not have apparent paths forward yet. So that's what's so difficult and perplexing and disempowering for many people. And that's what I tried to do uh, in the second and third part of my book, is to lay out how we can begin to think about our path of service to a global community in the context in which we're now, which is a very turbulent context, lots of unknowns, huge polarization, a lot of animosity, a lot of conflict. What does it mean to serve right now? And again, a central concept for me comes from the way of unity as revealed and kind of laid out for the future of of human society. 19th century, in that way of unity, the path of service was described as a consultative path which avoids any form of partisanship 
and division. Now that is very complex, especially in a highly partisan world where we always are talking about what we are for, but also what we're against. And so the unitive path of service um, seeks consultation, circles of consultation on every level with people from every orientation and every conviction so that we can more deeply hear each other and find that common ground which emerges organically when we listen deeply enough and with a um, in a state of spiritual detachment. And so I try to describe this path of service, uh, which is based on the principle of uh, consultation, as it was first described again in the 19th century, and then illustrated quite well in the early part of the uh, 20th century during the talks of Abdu'l-Bahá that he gave uh, throughout the West in in London, in Paris, and all over the U.S., where he was speaking already about unity and consultative processes to a world that was getting ready to enter two world wars. It was in in some ways well ahead of its time. Uh, And in other ways, it was, again, the zone of proximal development, charting the horizon. We are at that horizon now, and we have to learn to consult. 90 years later, after these talks, we are all realizing that partisanship simply does not work. Yeah, you're a great teacher. You are so effective in your speech here. It, so it's clear, I'm just like kind of following up with that, that this unitive path of service and unitive healing is really everything about our relationship to the whole, isn't it? It's just like yeah. having a relationship to the whole. Okay, let's presence the heart because I really want to bring this through before we run out of time today. You write, throughout history, Every culture has recognized the central role of heart in human affairs and has associated it with the deepest resources of human nature, qualities of wisdom and compassionate understanding, courage, endurance, faithfulness. We intuitively know that we thrive only to the extent that we find something trustworthy to love and adore something that elevates the human heart and rejoices the spirit. I love this idea. And the the one thing that jumped out to me in this quote was this idea of the deepest resources of human nature. It's like talking about heart, talking about those qualities of the heart, and then thinking about that as our, literally our deepest resources of human nature. Can you talk about this in relationship to this global unit of healing that we're talking about? Thank you for this uh, really on-point selection. I really appreciate how deeply you have uh, read and listened to what I was moved to write. Uh, I should say that all of this literally came through me. I I look at this book now and I frankly wonder, did I write this? Um, Where did this come from? And I know it didn't come from my individual mind. I'm pretty clear about that. It flowed through my heart from, I believe, from collective consciousness because its time had come. And that is the same deep resource that I find heals other people when they connect to it. So 
uh, in the Baha'i spiritual understanding, the heart is understood as the seat of the soul. Of course, the soul uh, is a non-physical entity, so it does not have a seat. <laughs> so here's the paradox. But if, uh, if there is anything that we can associate most closely with the soul, that would be the heart. And of course, the soul comes into this world already with a blueprint of the reality of absolute beauty, truth, and goodness, and a longing to attain union with that. That is the deepest longing of the soul, the longing to, to find greater beauty, greater truth, greater goodness, and to be unified with that. That is the longing which we can learn to hear in our hearts when we deep listen. And what happens is that when we quiet the minds and really center into the heart, from that deepest longing arises what we need to hear and know at any particular moment. A guidance arises. Why? Because we now know even scientifically that the heart is the most powerful energy center of the human body. The heart as an energy center is in fact directly communicating with universal consciousness, with the universal field. And so the heart in fact receives from the universal field. So that's so powerful. And I, if we had more time, maybe another time, I could tell story after story of what happens in therapy when people center in their hearts and listen amidst their sense of complete perplexity and despair, when they drop into their hearts and listen, the kind of things that come up, literally seemingly out of nowhere, are so powerful, so transformative. Mm. Maybe I'm saying too much in, in one breath, so please feel free to interrupt me. No, it's, it's really beautiful. And I, yeah, just listening to you, it's like I do want to hear your story after story after story, and you do have beautiful stories in this book, story after story. Um, this idea that the heart is directly connected to universal consciousness. So it d does become this, this really deep, deep research. I just, a resource and it's exquisite how you bring that forward. Even in our deepest despair, when we tune into the heart, there's this internal guidance system. It's, it's really, it's really amazing. May okay. I just one example, I would be very quick. Sure. Okay. I would like to give, an example with my own process of writing. Again and again, I would find myself awakened at literally 3 a.m. with the clear sense that it's not time to sleep anymore. It's time to pray, meditate, and write. And if I tried to resist it, I would toss and turn and eventually yield and get up. And then I would start writing, but very soon I'd feel like, oh, I don't know where this is headed now. And it would be this experience of dead end and, of course, panic and frustration. Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Is this, am I in the middle of nowhere? And then I would remember my own advice and go back to my heart and pray and meditate some more. And then these amazing things would just 
present themselves in front of me and I'll know exactly where the next step is, what the next thought is, where the next paragraph is going. And it literally got revealed step by step in this way by listening to my heart. Many times I felt like I have too many things I know, too many things I'm trying to say, too many different thoughts, and it's just overwhelming. And so I would just stop and come back to the heart and get really, really quiet, drop deep inside, and then one single picture, one single knowing would emerge, and I would write that. Mm. Beautiful example. Thank you so much. You know, it's really clear that the heart then becomes the linchpin for unitive healing, doesn't it? Yes, exactly. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, so not only that inspiration and that intuition, but really bringing us into that unitive state. It's it's just the magic there. There's the magic. I think there. I, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna open the book um, before I have I have one more really important question. I hope we have time for. It, but I want to find that little place. Maybe you can do it by heart. Um, there was a story about the ten-year-old boy. Um, that asked his mom, here, let me just read it. Here, I found it. Yes, yes, okay. I love this. A 10-year-old emerging swan of a boy recently observed to his mother, the world is upside down, mom, not even sideways. Your client, his mother, paused, took a deep breath and responded, it's okay, son. Babies are born upside down. It's the right position for emerging into a new reality. I loved that. I loved that. I'm so glad I found that because this, I'm just going to give you an opportunity here in the next um, several minutes of our show before we have to close of really looking at, you know, here we are. It does feel like an upside down reality. And yet this is how the new is birthing through us. It's how the new is born. So tell us what, can we do to take all of this to the next level? Elena, where do we go from here? You know, thank you. This is this is the most important question, isn't it? We have to we have to finally accept that for all of our problem-solving skills, for all of our smartness, for all of our knowing, we don't really know with our heads enough to see all the way. So we have to truly trust the heart because the heart will tell us in every moment, this does not feel right. Oh, this does feel right. Go forward. Mm -hmm. So uh, it is upside down because we're arguing about theories. We are arguing about intellectual positions. We're putting forth all these different models. And then other people are coming along and saying, oh, you intellectuals, you don't understand our lives. We can't come together in that way. We have to come together by realizing that it is a profound mystical process of owning our interdependence and suspending the arguments and really reaching towards each other, creating circles and in these circles, allowing organic solutions to emerge. And then these organic solutions will refer us back to intellectual frameworks and ideas and knowledge and skills and know-how. And we will draw on those as long as we don't get dizzy with our intellectual knowing and keep coming back to our heart-centered organic circles and take the next step organically and together. So um, 
It's a step-by-step, moment-by-eternal moment movement forward. That's what we have to understand. We are in linear time, and in linear time, we have nine years before irreversible processes of climate change set in. So in one way, it is a very much a linear time frame. In a different way, every moment is eternal. In every moment that we create these unitive consultative circles, the solutions that emerge are quite powerful, quite transformative, and take things to the next level. In fact, this is already being done in community circles worldwide. And I mentioned that somewhere in the last chapter, I believe. So there are these kind of consultative circles that uh, Baha'is are working with all over the planet, and they are open circles. They don't depend on religious, ethnic, or other form of identity. They're open circles that just uh, invite everybody into a spiritual awareness, into a spiritual evolutionary unitive language and a consultative process. And out of that, communities transform and leap forward. And this happens in the eternal now. We have to understand that each moment is sacred and we cannot bypass moments and rush forward and get to the right place in this way. Mm. I want to reframe this or rephrase this, um, not reframe. I want to really, really pause and have us all hear that, that this, this occurs in the eternal moment of now and through the heart. Just like you had said, the solutions aren't coming from our heads and that intellectual capacity, even though there's brilliance and genius there, our true innate genius comes through the heart and then we get to kind of fill it all in with the intellect later. Is that how you would say it? Yes, that's perfect. You know, uh, I think the Native Americans have a great saying, which might be a nice way to close. They they said... Uh, uh, the head is a wonderful servant and a terrible master. Mm. <laughs> so that sums it up. I love that. Elena, this was just a delight to have you here. Thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom. I appreciate that the book came through you. It is extensive. And um, it, it is, it's one that we all need to pick up. It's... Wow, there's so much goodness here. Thank you for bringing this voice to all of our listeners here today. Thank you so much, Julie, for opening the space with such wisdom and presence. My deepest gratitude to you. Thank you. Thank you. And maybe we'll have to do that part two so we can do some of the more heart expansive work together on air. That would be lovely. And listeners, thank you for joining us here today. I hope that you feel the the breadth and the depth of the potential here in this conversation. Go pick up Global Unitive Healing by Elena Mustakova. And I want to leave you with her words. Welcome to the horizon of collective unitive healing, the achievements of our united hearts, minds, and spirits can create a universal civilization rich with our diversity beyond anything the present age can conceive. Let us remember these prophetic words. So powerful is the light of unity that it can illuminate the whole earth. 
You've been listening to the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected. Remember, together, we are creating connections for the good of the whole. Until next time, I'm sending you a world of love. Bye for now.